help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country and broadcast on the community radio network all over these stolen lands they call Australia. I'm Nikki Stott. Zaman Golona Alemona Nam. Ma vision me nana begolala zemono begolala zaman kolona alemona nam ma vision me nana begolala zemono begolala la 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 begolala Zemunumin begolalala la 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 begolalala zemunumin begolalala Western scientists have an obligation to acknowledge and make amends for the damage that their coloniser disciplines have wreaked on Indigenous knowledge systems in regards to unsustainable agricultural and mining practices. Today on Earth Matters, we hear from two African spokespeople who are campaigning for the revival of traditional ecological knowledge practices in Africa. First up, we'll hear from Alawia Jamal, an ecologist based in Khartoum, who's speaking about the various indigenous peoples of Sudan and how they've been negatively impacted by mechanised farming on their traditional food corridors, which they had previously preserved on their country for hundreds of years using indigenous knowledge systems. Later in the show, we'll hear from Kenyan man Gathuru Muburu, who is the coordinator of the African Biodiversity Network, an organisation which is finding innovative ways to work with communities across Africa in order to revive and instil new confidence in local Indigenous knowledge systems. But first up, Alawiya Jamal. I'm taking you back to Earth. I'm talking about the environment. And environment is multifaceted. There's too many aspects of the environment, but I've only chosen one aspect, and those are the issues of indigenous knowledge. Sudan is an amazing country of culture, ecological diversity, and indigenous knowledge. We are also a blend of African, Arabs, and indigenous groups. Um, Sudan is a Sahelian country, 
it falls under five ecological zones. Uh, the five ecological zones are deserts, semi-deserts, the short savanna, the tall savannas, and the montane and the riverine zones. Why have I taken uh, indigenous knowledge as a topic? Indigenous knowledge has, as far back as the 1980s, has been the savior of population at the times of droughts and famines. Besides that, it's a, a subject that I think is, has not been, although recognized, it has not been uh, um, very much popularized. And that is where I'm taking you. The first ecological zone here um, is the uh, desert ecosystems. And you can see the desert ecosystems are not just a result of uh, deforestation, wind erosion, and maybe human activities. Uh, the desert ecosystems are known to have very little rainfall. Very little for rainfall. It is only populated by pastoralists. 13% of the pastoralists live in these very harsh conditions. They have over time managed to live in these conditions by understanding the ecosystems. The most famous of those are the Kababish. They travel all the way from the north of Darfur and they come to the south to the fertile areas. There are about 27 oases in this, the desert zone. They are not all inhabited. Just to give you an example, you will find Al-Nikhela and Salima, which are in North Darfur. You will find Al-Gab, which is in Dungula. And these uh, areas, the Kababish would bring their herds from the north to the south, making use of or understanding the very lush grass that comes out, not on a yearly basis, but it emerges periodically. What they do usually is they send out scouts to assess and gauge the pastures. Then they would start moving their uh, herds, and mostly they are camels. They would also survive these hard conditions by planting uh, or cultivating, actually, the goes and around the um, oasis. And usually it is the short, resistant, quick-growing uh, crops, like millet and sorghum. The uh, people who you, uh, move with the uh, herds are the young ones. They only live on camel milk for the season. The desert might look to most people as empty places, the desert are not empty, it is full and it preserves our history. Just to give you a simple example is the Karma. Karma is it's a temple for, for worshipping Amun, the Kush civilization. And the, uh, the forest civilization had common gods and that is the uh, god Amun. And the environment at that time, I think they were quite a wetter uh, environment. It just shows that we can be destructive. Human beings can be destructive. If I get you to the second ecological zone, which is the... Actually, I'm, I'm going to merge the two 
zones together, the long savanna and the short savanna zones. These are the richest uh, ecosystems we have in Sudan. They represent about 49% of the country. About 76% of the population live here and I'll give you two examples how indigenous knowledge has maintained these ecosystems. This is what the indigenous knowledge, how positive it is. It can maintain our environment. And by the way, environment is not just a, it's not a fallacy. It's an everyday issue that people should think about. The example that I want to take is uh, two tribes live They coexist peacefully in a very symbiotic relationship, and those are the Meseria Baggara and the Hamar Abbala. And from the word Baggara and Abbala, you will understand that one are cattle breeders, the other ones are camel breeders. And this is an interesting uh, relationship. These people, again, they move from the north to the south axis, and here again, the pasture is shared based on a cyclic rotation. The Messiria, who are from southern western Kurdufan, they would move from their dar or from their seat in Babanusa, and they will move into the northern part of their own territories, avoiding the swampy plains and the biting insects during the heavy rains. And they would graze their cattle further up. In the dry seasons, they would move north, and they will move north to the wetter grounds, and they will move towards Abiyé. While what happens here is interesting, the Abala, who are usually herding their camel in the southern part, they will move north where the Meseria originally stayed to graze now, the, or to browse actually, the um, acacia and the compretum uh, trees. So there is this symbiotic relationship between the two uh, uh, coexisting uh, peacefully. The other example of this region, which is also very interesting, is um, that the native administration, they would meet in a place called Safaha, which is on the borders of Darfur and Kurdufan. And this is again between the uh, Rizegat and the um, Maalia. The Rizegat and the Maalia would come annually to meet together, again to assess the kind of posture, their carrying capacity, and they would send out scouts to gauge this carrying capacity. They would look at the posture, they would look at the water capacities, and then they would start moving within strict corridors, which have been there for centuries, for them to move into these um, areas. The thing is about the um, both types of uh, examples I've been giving, they look at or they navigate their uh, decision is based on the weather. It is the rain that they look at. And one example which is worth quoting is that in 1988, the Kababish saw a star in the sky 
and they beat their nahas, their drums, their traditional drums, of a warning that there is a heavy rains for those, and it's a good season, and for others, it brought, of course, a floods and miseries where they could not cope with too much of the uh, rains. The other um, issue that I would like to um, move into is the These systems work beautifully without the interventions of policies. Policies have to be well studied before any interventions should be taken. An example of the anti-search campaign, an example of the, uh, the mechanized farming, traditional mechanized farming, those expand into these um, migration corridors and they're always a cause of a conflict. And the conflicts are not something that is abstract for all of us. You can see it in Darfur, you can see it in the Blue Nile, and you can also see it uh, in the, the new area of the borders between the two countries. If I'm allowed some time, I would want to go to the, or the mountain uh, the mountain ecosystem. The, the mountain ecosystem is interesting because it's also a scattered kind of uh, ecosystem. And I will choose, for example, four. And we'll ta- start with Jabal Marra. Jabal Marra is an interesting. It's, uh, it, it receives um, around um, 1,000 milliliters of rain. It has about uh, two crater rakes, 17 streams, and hot uh, springs. It is uh, the seat of the Sultanate uh, that had um, not been in isolation from uh, the rest of the country. It had relationship with the Black Sultanates of uh, uh, Sinar. It had a relationship with the Tunisians, and it had a relationship with the Mecca. People uh, would remember that Mecca was. Um, Covered from, it was sponsored by the Sultanate of Jabal Marra. Jabal Marra is also interesting because it has a gallery forests. It's very rich in biodiversity. It is very rich in forestry, and it's also rich in the diversity of its foods. Here you will find that women, I mean women all over Sudan all over these ecological zones are responsible for the household security. These women, you would see that they grow their jubrakas in Darfur and their swabers in, in the Blue Nile and, of course, the, uh, the matmura in Gadarif. And I would like to leave you with just a thought. We should think environment, 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 There are individual responsibilities and there are a collective responsibility. One collective responsibility should be that scientists and the communities should link together. We should link uh, indigenous knowledge with science. We should look at how we can do a kind of a, a social contract with these communities, not encroaching on their properties, but how could there be a win-win situation? And the third is those for the private sector, is that 
social cooperative responsibility should not be a philanthropy. It should be something that is well-founded and well-integrated in our issues of development. Going green is not uh, this individual responsibility. It's, not, it's, it's also cost-effective. And with that, I leave you. Think environment, environment, and environment. <laughs> That was Alawir Jamal, an ecologist based in Khartoum, speaking about indigenous knowledge systems in Sudan. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And next up, we'll hear from Kenyan man Gaturu Muburu, who is a coordinator of the African Biodiversity Network. It's an organisation which is finding innovative ways to work with communities across Africa in order to revive and instill new confidence in local indigenous knowledge systems. The story of ABN, uh, the African Biodiversity Network, is a real story of an organization that has emerged from nothing to what, uh, to what it is today. The main thing that ABN has actually structured around and evolved around is what we call inter-community, inter-generational or community dialogues. So the word dialogue for ABN has a very, very deep meaning. For ABN and the partners, we only accompany the communities to work on the issues that they have, uh, they have identified. So we never tell them that we are coming with solutions. We do not make solutions for the people. So we only give them, provide a forum for them to dialogue, to reflect on the issues, the problems, the challenges, and then they identify priority um, um, activities that they want to move on with, and we accompany them along this. Our advocacy has been a different kind of advocacy, where communities identify all these challenges that they face, the climate change, genetic engineering, the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa, which is actually about chemicals and more chemical inputs in Africa and new seeds and the like. So all the problems, including land grabbing that is happening in the name of investments. So all these problems we address them through advocacy. So advocacy is actually making the people aware of the enemy without, including the enemy within. Because at the moment, the enemies without are working with the enemies within. And this is how they are subduing African communities. Many communities in Africa are not leader communities. You can say they are communities because they are being called by this name but they are individuals, and they live as individuals. But some of the challenges they are facing today cannot be addressed by individuals. They can only address them as communities. So we talk uh, with them about how they can become communities again. Can communities themselves look for solutions that actually address their challenges and which are in their control? Because a lot of the solutions that are coming from without are not in the control of the beneficiaries. It's the benefactors who are controlling this. And this is why Africa cannot develop. So if we have indigenous solutions, that's the only time that Africa will develop. And that is where we as ABN are moving towards, where communities take charge of their destiny. And the most important thing to begin with is to have the people produce their own food. 
because if they are hungry, then they can be swayed from whichever side. But if they control their own food, the rest will be history. So we have realized, and it is not only us in ABN, it's sort of the whole world is realizing that the salvation of this world is hinged on indigenous knowledge. We have moved so far with Western, the scientific knowledge, but now we are being stopped. No. We are being told, no, stop, reflect, think. Where you are headed for may not be the right place. But we are also realizing that <clears throat> Africa, especially, has been left behind. These other places, Latin America, Asia, indigenous knowledge in those places has been promoted and taken very well. But in Africa, this has not happened. So for us, it's reflecting and asking, why is this happening? Is it that we do not have indigenous knowledge in Africa? What could be the problem? But we are also realizing that there are historical prejudices against indigenous knowledge in Africa. So this is where we want to take our people from, to tell them that the elders, the men and women, those who are old, they have something to contribute to development and protection of Africa today. We work with both old men and women, and when they are dialoguing, when they are discussing, things emerge. So for us, one critical important principle in the work that we do is the principle of emergence. So we do not go and tell people, this is what you need to do. You, are, you people are hungry, so you need to get these seeds, you need to do A, B, C, D. But we give them an opportunity to talk, to discuss, and then out of those discussions, things emerge. And the things that have emerged, one of these um, things actually has been a process we call uh, climate seeds and knowledge. We have realized that for most of African communities who depend on biodiversity, then local seeds, both of crops and animals, are very, very important. Uh, a lot of work has been done uh, to change the indigenous crops and even to bring new ones, and especially the hybrids of seeds, the new seeds. So a lot of our indigenous seeds have actually disappeared, and those that are remaining are now being targeted for genetic modification. We have to bring back life to our soils. So we have to be innovative enough. And it is not only ABN that is doing that. There are many people who are doing this. Organizations like UNEP have recognized that organic agriculture, organic farming could be one of the solutions for the African situation. The unfortunate thing is that all those who are contributing solutions are actually party to the problem. And this is the main problem for Africa, that we have problems there, but the solutions are actually external. Our own solutions in Africa are not given a priority. We know of Kyoto Protocol. We know of so many other protocols that we have put down with pen, but we are not following this. Katahina Protocol, it has been used to marginalize and actually to destroy Africa's biodiversity. We also look for very innovative ways of bringing this knowledge uh, to life. And one of the processes that we have used is um, ecological mapping. Ecological mapping is actually a very simple way of making sketch maps 
by people who map their territory. So the people who have this knowledge are the elders again. So they come together and they put all the things that they know about their territory and especially from the past. So they map their territory, how it used to be in the past, how it is at present. They compare how things used to be in those times, how things are today, and they see the difference. So they see the reason why they are, uh, they are experiencing the challenges and the situations they are in today. And then they think through what kind of future would they like. So they map that down. The other thing that uh, we actually uh, try to do a lot is uh, a process we call intergenerational learning. And it's not unique to African Biodiversity Network. It's being done by other people. If we say today that this knowledge is important, and at all these international protocols and agreements that we are signing, people are talking about the need or the usefulness of indigenous knowledge, then why aren't we teaching it? Why is it not being taught? And if it cannot be taught in schools, why aren't we creating spaces for it to be shared by elders? Then the other issues that we have uh, actually addressed are uh, uh, concerns sacred sites because all these things we are looking at are interconnected in one way or another. Food production is connected to good soils, is connected to sacredness of ecosystems, is connected to spirituality of a people because for some communities in Africa, all this is actually their life. There is a movement that is actually targeting sacred sites today and especially around issues of mining because they have recognized that most of these sacred sites that are protected by local people have mineral deposits. Now this realization is putting our work again in jeopardy. We work so hard to protect with the communities but then investors come to destroy the same ecosystems that we are trying to protect. Earth jurisprudence is uh, actually not a new jurisprudence, but it is acknowledging that um, communities, indigenous communities, have their own legal relationship with their earth, with the territory. The issue of sacred sites is part of earth jurisprudence. Customary laws, the norms that people have, all form aspects of earth jurisprudence. But it is also the realization that human beings are not the only beings in the world. If you just consider yourself as human beings, as the rightful owners of the rest of the beings, then that is where the problem is coming from. Because uh, we regard them as resources, so we have to extract them. We go cutting down trees, we go game hunting, we go doing all those things that we do. But we need to remember that they are not infinite, they are finite. And when they reach that level, we also become finite. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show, we heard from Sudanese ecologist Alawia Jamal and Kenyan man Gathuru Muburu, who is the coordinator of the African Biodiversity Network. And if you'd like to find out more about them, you can go to africanbiodiversity.org. The music we've been playing today was brought to us by Masin Hassar, 
and it's called We Are Ready to Fight for Freedom. If Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you today. And Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria and broadcast all over these stolen lands they call Australia. Our contact is 0394198377 or earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I'm Nikki Stott. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to tune in next week to Earth Matters. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.